This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it is completely free. So join today at www.bonsai.film. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights, our biweekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails, just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights for free. Listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. folks, my name is Zaire Montes. I'm a Latina actress, producer, and writer. You might know me for Rumba Love, the premiere last year um, in the Heritage Latin Heritage Month. And I'm currently working on a, an amazing movie called Dopamine. Zaire Montes, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is my distinct pleasure and those two uh, projects you mentioned, Roomba Love and Dopamine, I watched the trailer for both of them. They're awesome looking. I cannot wait to see oh, Dopamine. thank you. And just Me to too. give this, this audience a sense of what Dopamine is, it's a, it, it feels like it's a comedy. So it's a comedy where this young lady decides to take a pill that makes her orgasm anytime she sees something that well, I don't know. Is it anytime she sees something that it's turns actually, her on? Uh, let, let, let makes me, her let fall me tell in you love. how it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this scientist, she's creating this pill just to make it easy for everybody. <laughs> and just like you take the pill, you fall in love. Right. right. But, yeah. you know, she, she has to test it. And she tested in three individuals. One of them go to the Caribbean. And then she, you know, all the chemical sensations, you know, make her <laughs> have orgasms every other second so she struggles a lot because of course it's not like magic no pill is magic right right and uh then she tested in another guy and then he has to travel uh for business and then it's the total opposite you know situation he falls in love like romantic love he can control it and uh it's pretty 
funny and it's hilarious. And at the end of the day, a little bit of the message is that, you know, love isn't chemical, 100%. There are things you cannot control, right? And, um, and yeah, and nowadays in our society, we're so used to, you know, is it fixes for everything? And sometimes you just have to let it go and, and be yourself and be present and be willing to engage with another human being and spend time with that person. And then, you know, magic happens, right? But the pill doesn't, you know, determine who you are going to fall in love with and if that person is going to fall, fall in love back, right? So it's a whole comedy and it has a lot of hilarious situations around these characters struggling yeah. with their hormones and the pill and the scientists and the whole thing. Yeah, the trailer is fantastic. Whoever cuts yeah. the trailers... Does a wonderful yeah, job. I watched all your trailers. They're all oh, thank great. you. That's They're amazing. All really thank well you. cut. And when this actually releases, I think you might find some of that timing magic, zeitgeist magic that we need as independent filmmakers. Because one of the phenomenons coming out of COVID is that young people aren't having sex anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're actually afraid to fall in love or they're afraid to get connected to someone and for a variety yeah. of reasons and maybe rightfully so. But here comes dopamine and it will be interesting to see. It's, it's, it's good to take on a serious topic from a comedic slant because you can yeah. get your message. It sugarcoats the message. And so I, I, I'm, I'm rooting for you and I will be first in line to watch it. Let me go back Thank and do you. my job. You're welcome. Let me go back <laughs> and do my job and actually introduce you to the audience properly because you've done so much more. You are, uh, you, you're honestly like a, a, a true multi hyphen in here. So let's dig into your bio. Now this is from the internet. Okay. So you just tell me <laughs> if it's, if it's wrong. Okay. Right. Wrong. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Actress, producer, and writer Zaira Montez started her career in the industry as an actress, performing in several roles in different countries in Latin America. In this regard, she has a vast experience in TV, theater, and films. In 2014, she produced and played a lead role in the American feature film Habana Instant, which is unbelievable. It made one of our researchers cry. And it's a drama shot on location in Cuba and winner of the Innovation Award and the Ecumenial Award at Montreal World Film Festival 2015. In 2016, she produced the first horror movie to be shot between New York and Havana. It's called Havana Darkness. It looks incredibly creepy. Go check it out. <laughs> and she also produced and acted in the movie Welcome to Acapulco with William Baldwin, Paul Servino, and Michael Madsen. What a, what a cast. In 2018, she acted in the New York-based movie Respite and wrote her first theater play, The Flowers, which has now uh, turned into a series. And you are working on season two. I believe it premiered on Amazon Prime. Uh, later that year, Zaire produced the Mexican unit of the movie How I Got Here, starring Ron Perlman, who I just actually saw in a Hulu series, and he was great in that. In 2020, she finished principal photography of her latest film, the aforementioned Roomba Love, shot on locations in New York and Cuba, in which she acts and produces. Zaire also wrote the uh, wrote and acted in the web series A Couple in Quarantine, currently on their own streaming channel, GC Flicks. 
Later that year, she produced Career Confessions with Jamila Jamil for Glamour, a YouTube original pilot that premiered in 2021. And she also premiered the short film Imagine and The Other Side of Things. Uh, And we mentioned you working on The Flower Season 2. Zaire, that is a lot, a lot of work put in and passion. Does that, did I get, did I get all the details right? Yeah, you did. (laughs) Honestly. Yeah. A lot of people hear their own bio and they don't get a chance to actually hear it all. And they're like, I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, did I know what happens to me? It's like, you just skip that, skip that. Let's let's (laughs) make it shorter. Like we don't have to say that much. It's pretentious. It's like, you know, not on this podcast, because on this one, we want people to, listen to this over and over and over again throughout time and for it to be sort of earmarked as, uh, like I mentioned before, like your audio resume, this is, this is evergreen, if you will. So in the spirit of that, can you describe growing up in Caracas, Venezuela and growing up in your family, what that was like? Sure. Um, I loved it. Honestly, I had, uh, I can say that I had a, beautiful child childhood in, in Caracas, in Venezuela. Um, my parents were coming from Colombia, so they were immigrants. And uh, Venezuela had this thing that it's it was kind of a land of immigrants, you know, after the Second um, World War. A lot of Span- people from Spain, Portuguese, uh, Lebanon, Italy, you know, went to live in Venezuela. So it was common to have like a huge, you know, um, immigration population. So things like, so I can say that I grew up with, you know, there was no many like racial things as, you know, strong as or rooted as any other country. And, uh, and I had, I grew up with friends from Italy France, Peru, Colombia. Uh, it was hard to find like people who were like only from Venezuela. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty nice and and cool. I had I had a blast. I went to the university in Venezuela. I studied uh, translation, English translation, and Portuguese at the time. And I started my career as an actress in Venezuela. I did. You know, I started doing soap operas and movies, Venezuela movies. And um, in 2010, I moved to Colombia because the industry was like, you know, the Latino industry was like, you know, booming in Colombia. Mm-hmm. We had like Fox and, you know, all these like um, big companies producing like MTV and, you know, producing content in Colombia in Colombia for Latin America. So I moved to Colombia and I continue acting there for a little while. Series, TV series is I did something for MTV, for local channels. I did a movie and that movie is called Carousel. And that kind of introduced me to the world of, you know, you know, I, I started flirting with what's going on on the other side of, you know, <laughs> the screen, yeah. right? On, yeah. on the behind the scene. So after that movie, I kind of started learning about post-production, about 
editing because and about producing in general, because before that I was just an actress and it's beautiful. I love being an actress. It's like my passion number one. But sometimes when you are just an actor, you're so like oblivious of so many things that happen on the other side. And, uh, and when you kind of like have the opportunity to experience that, then the world kind of expands or at least that was my experience. So yeah. that kind of brought me little by little into the first uh, movie that I produced, which is Havana Instant, that we went to Cuba and shot it in Cuba. And that was like, you know, like that, that changed my life that project as an actress and as a human being. Yeah. We're going to dig into that. All those things you said, actually, and there was a lot to dig into. I, I don't think I certainly didn't realize it. And I don't think a lot of people in this audience would realize that growing up in uh, Caracas is kind of like being, at least when you grew up, it's kind of like being in New York or LA where no one is from there. Yeah. That's a really interesting concept that probably helps you migrate to LA and New York a little easier, perhaps. Yeah. Well, yes, I know. I'm going to tell you what, what happens. I think like in my generation, you know, like our parents were the ones who land, who arrived in Venezuela. Right. So Mm -hmm. we were all like, we were born in Venezuela, Mm -hmm. but we were very open all the time with immigration you know, I'm generalizing. I'm not mm. saying there was no like, you know, crisis in our rejections or, you know, immigration issues. But in general, it was very open. So what happens is that when Venezuelans go, you know, and migrate to different countries, they expect the same and they have mm. issues um, adapting and mingling because they have it's hard for them to kind of like, you know, not think about, you know, but back in the past, we, we treated people differently or we were yeah. this and that, and this was so good. And of course we have been you know, immigrants because of mo- most of the times because of the political situation. So that makes things worse because in certain immigrations you want to, and I can say that that's my case and that's why it wasn't that difficult for me. I really wanted to do more uh, mm-hmm. professionally than yeah. what I was doing in Venezuela. And my first step in that regard was to go to Colombia. Probably if the political situation were not that, was not that bad, maybe I would, I would have stayed longer in Venezuela. I don't oh, know. That's I, I cannot yeah. tell you that for a fact. But, but I didn't know that I wanted to, I wasn't leaving because I felt that I was, you know, losing my democracy or freedom or opportunities, or I was leaving mostly because I wanted more, you know, I had done soap operas. I had been the lead in those soap operas. I'd done theater, I'd done movies. And then it was like, not what, right? Yeah. So when I saw everything that was happening in Colombia and Colombia was coming with a closer approach to, you know, the, the American way of producing like more cinematic, less soapy. 
So I, I got attracted to that. So I moved to Colombia to expand my, my career. Yeah. And then when I continued, when I went to Mexico and then ended up in the U S was kind of for the same reason. Yeah. And I don't know the, if that uh, answered the question or if I just made it <laughs> no, more was, convoluted. Was, every time you speak, I learn something new. I think that's, that's pretty good. And we interviewed uh, Florencia Lozano and she did soaps for years and, she talked about how much of a grind it is because you're shooting like 65 pages a day. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of like you can burn out. You either get used to that lifestyle of like the, the scheduling yeah. of a soap or you get burnt out on it and, and want to leave yeah. it yeah. for, for good. Yeah. It's, it has, I mean, the, the pros on that, is that you have like you train your like your memory so like it's a good training for your memory. Oh yeah. Because yeah. you have to learn all that, you know, by heart and, and you have this like training. That's a good, you know, aspect of it. But of course you, you know, you compromise quality and you know, and not only the actors qual like deliver but also like the product, you know, it's not the same. Yeah. It's not a good, like, it's not the best quality. It's not, you don't have time or space to take care of things that you should be taking care of. So that's a good point. Uh, you mentioned leaving Venezuela to do more. What is the state of independent film and filmmaking in Venezuela today? Do you know? Well, it's, it's not the same, obviously like Venezuela has gone through a lot of ups and downs, Mm -hmm. Um, when I left, you know, productions were diminishing because, you know, the, the, the economic instability was huge and it, it affected like people didn't want to put their money, you know, yeah. so you will always have to go through institutions, you know, to get funding and grants to do mm -hmm. projects. But, um, after that, you know, kind of like the whole market shut down for a while. Hyperinflation, right? You know, networks. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the insecurity and the and, and and the networks were not capable of, you know, keeping up with the inflation and you know with the political instability. So so it shut down for a while. Now I'm seeing more like people willing to to go back and there has been like a, a new, like, you know, um, group of people who are doing independent uh, movies yeah. and, and, and a lot, a lot of theater theater has, you know, aside from the pandemic time, you know, like theater was like strong in Venezuela mm -hmm. and, um, and yeah. And so it's, I think people are finding the way to continue creating and doing. And there are a lot of talents, like good talents in Venezuela. And, and, and I see also many actors who are based in the U.S. or Colombia or Mexico. They go back to Venezuela and shoot the movie and then come back. I haven't had the chance. I, I'd love to. Uh, but yeah, so you see a lot of that in a lot of aperture and now even co-productions with other countries. Again, it's not ideal. It's not how it was before, you know, everything started, you know, going down the train. But um, but it's, you know, people, there are a lot of people willing to, you know, keep up and fight and do things. And I, I, I admire that. 
people who stood, who never left and were just fighting to have, you know, the normalcy that they deserve. And we'll circle back on this a little bit more as we go, but thank you for, for sharing that. It's a really important um, point as we go along in the, in the conversation that we'll definitely circle back on. Was there a moment that you can remember growing up? It could be a moment of inspiration. It could be something you did. It could be something you saw. That moment where you knew starting this day going forward, I'm going to live a creative life. Well, I think I'm not sure if I have a particular moment, but I do know that I was always attracted to everything that seemed artistic or, mm. you know, everything from even, even from sports to, you know, uh, I, like I was always like in love with, you know, if there was some opportunity to paint or if there was some opportunity to, you know, to do modeling or, you know, commercials or seeing kids, like seeing kids on television would make me like, go like, wow. Like, yeah. I want that. Like, and, and I, I don't come from a family with artistic pain, like not my mom or my dad, none of them. Like they are zero, zero, no, no so, sense. So how of, did this you know, happen? So, so <laughs> I don't know, but they, I think they also sparked my curiosity. So if I wanted to just explore here, like dance, they would just take me to dance if I wanted to, you know, to do like, all the things that I did at school, like theater at school and all that, they were like supporting it. So my mom used to say that, that I was so like annoying with, I, I, I want to get on like on TV. I want to. And, um, and she told me, she said, she told me when you turn 15, I'll, I'll just pay for, you know, the, the modeling thing. And then, then you'll do like the, the, the agency and uh, I promise yeah. she thought yeah. I was gonna forget but I always brought it back and uh, and she also like I, I went and researched by myself when I was 12 like seeing like how kids got into television how kids would do commercials and I found an agency and I was like 12 but <laughs> she took me and she took me to I guess she took me to you know 10 auditions out of the hundred that they received because she was like, she had to drive me and spend the, the afternoon and the whole thing. But she, right. she, she helped me. And I remember once I was, I booked a, a, like a small kind of background role in, in a TV series for teenagers. And I was like 13, I was in high school and my dad took me and we stood there until 2 a.m. And he was there with me, like, and I had to go to school this, the next day. So, so they were very supportive. And I think that, you know, helped me um, move on and continue exploring that. Although I have to say that when I entered college and I was going to an audition, but the, at the time I had done few commercials here and there, but nothing substantial. I was like 16 right? and I'm going to an audition and my dad told me, so you're now going to college, you know, like you explore, it's been cool, but don't you want to <laughs> move on in your life? Don't you want to, you know, 
And I remember like my faith at that time and my belief was so like unshakable that I'm like, no, I know I'm going to continue doing this and it's going to get better and better. And it happened. And interesting enough, like the short film that I did recently, The Other Side of Things. Yep. Watch this. It's an invitation for me to reconnect with my faith because I think as we grow old and become adults, we lose that, you know, belief, right? Mm -hmm. We lose the capacity. We're like, yeah, right. No, like I think, and, and I have struggled with it throughout my journey. And, uh, when I go back, when I was like in that conversation with my father, I I, I had it a hundred percent. No one could tell me otherwise. Yeah. And that's a little bit what I wanted to kind of like what I wanted to recreate in the short film is this, you know, idea that if we could believe like 1% more every day, you know, would be able to get more done or accomplished. But we have the noise, we have, you know, personal situations, you know, adulthood life, you name it. Right. And it gets in the way sometimes. It is beautifully put. I, I have a hundred creatives around me and, and sort of a, a circle around this podcast and around our, our little company uh, that deal with that every day, self-doubt, why am I doing this? Um, or, or they'll sort of kowtow a little bit and say, well, it doesn't matter if you make it or if you're famous or if you're doing good work, you're good enough as you are. And there's a part of that that's absolutely true. But I often wonder if they even believe it when they say it, because they do want something more. They do want something more substantial. They do want to have some notoriety. And I think. I think that's human being essence. Yeah. You know, it's, we all were, we want to strive for more and we always want more. And I think the main, what I have personally experienced, because I think the journey of an artist is, you know, it has a lot of ups and downs and self-doubt. And, but I think the problem is when you uh, start diminishing what you have done, because it's never good enough because it's not the next level yet. Yes. I agree with that. There's, uh, there's you, the person, and there's you, the creative that wants to express. Yeah. And you can't, you can't chop down the version that is you, the human, because the expressive artist hasn't done the thing you thought it or they should do by now. Right. You're still a great person. You're still valid. You're still have your rights. You still have, uh, you know, all your validity and just keep, chopping at that tree and keep making things and see where it takes you. I've had no problem admitting, and maybe I should be ashamed of it, but I have, I've had no problem in my life admitting that my primary goal is to be remembered. And I've, and I've said on this podcast before, part of why I do it is because this will outlive me. It's part of it. And that just is the truth about me. And, and, and I think, it's cathartic to say it out loud. Totally. And to just admit to it and not play a status game or play any game around it whatsoever. 
the moment in your short film that I thought illustrates your point really well is when uh, the mom is driving the SUV. Your, your character is driving the SUV and, and it's been made up to look like a jet. And, mm-hmm. and your son's like, oh, there's my jet. He really mm-hmm. believes. Yeah. Even if it, he believes. And then these other kids are there and you can, it's like a metaphor. These other kids are like the, your peers around you who are shitting on you, telling you, yeah. oh, that's not a jet. Of course. Yeah. You know, that's just a car with wings, you yeah. know, and a, and a nose on yeah. it. And, and we have to push the, that negativity out of our lives. So yeah. I, I, I yeah. enjoyed the short film and, now, and, and, and it made and sense. Me, yeah. Just to add something else, Please. like sometimes we don't need those kids. Sometimes we don't need those kids to tell us that's just a shitty car, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's just our mind tells us, you know, what you're, you're doing this. This is not that good. Like look on Instagram. What he's doing is good. Look in social media, right? You know, compare yourself. Like, where, where are you trying to do with your little car with, you know, like cardboard wings, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. no, look at the real jet, right? So what, what do you think you are? And you, sometimes you don't, I mean, most of the time you have those kids around you saying, telling you that. But many times it's your mind. Mm-hmm. You're telling that to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You're making it everything about you. Um, and sometimes it's not about you. Right. Yeah. And, and um, it's, it's a really good point. Comparison is hell. That's not my line. It's somebody else's line. I just can't remember who said it, but I've always hung yeah. on to it. And I find it to be very true because once you start, especially on social media, because it's comparison at scale. And so it, it hurts that that much more deeply. Um, you mentioned your parents, but you're also close with your grandparents. I'm curious, your grandma's 95 now. Uh, have you, have you learned, what did she (laughs) think about your career? Yes. Yeah. We we're known for that here on the make it podcast. And, um, (laughs) we have to thank our our team for that. Uh, she's 95 years old. Has she given you any wisdom that you take with you in your career? Uh, what does she think about this career you've chosen? Being from you a different generation, you know? Yeah, my, my, like, I love my grandmother and I, I have, you know, this, um, I love, like, you know, to have to spend time with, you know, old people in general. I have, mm-hmm. I, like, I find a lot of, um, you know, um, wisdom in, 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 in old people. And, um, with my grandmother, it's been, she raised me as well. Right. Uh, she was with me when my mom was studying and working sometimes. Yeah. So she's very influential in my life. Uh, but like, and I'm not going to be super like open. Um, please. She has, she didn't have an easy life mm-hmm. from the moment she was born. She was born. She was a widow with six kids when she was 20 years old. No money. Like she has lived a life of suffering. Right. And uh, the biggest lesson I'm learning from her is. Believe it or not, is trying to disattach from this. um, 
victim mode, mm. this way of seeing all the negativity and not being able to see the positive. Because unfortunately, the loop that she has developed and created in her mind for over the years is that everything bad happens to her, is that she has never been able to be happy, is that, you know, you know, her daughters and husband did this, her, you know, always liking that loop of negativity. And as she's 95 years old, she carries that with her, right? Mm-hmm. She's focusing on whatever is bad instead of, you know, the fact that, you know, she's alive, that she has, she's in a house, you know, mm-hmm. in, in which she has love. So, of course, she's in aisle now a little bit. So that makes it worse. Right. But sure. to me, it's like, it's, a, the, it's like I see her and I see how she raised this family and how she raised me. And she was so like such a good mother to me and how she would do everything for me. And she just that she's amazing. And, and when she sees me, she's just like, she smiles and she's happy when I call her, when I FaceTime with her or when I like, she was, she was, she was in Colombia at some point, like uh, a year ago and she was in a bad situation and I just took her and brought her to Venezuela with my mom. And like, so she, 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 she's happy when she sees me, but I, when I, and, and I tried to just show her like that happiness could be just those moments. Right. But yeah. it's also like, I'm learning. I, if I continue or if I keep with certain patterns, I might be that person when you're old that you're not, you, you focus on the negative. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, and it, she it has does. had that, but she didn't know any better. She has been struggling with poverty, with, you know, being a widow, no money, you know, a lot of, you know, difficult situations in her life. And she, and, and, you know, when you're in survival mode and that's it, like, there's nothing or nobody who can just, you know, take you out of that space on time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, It's really true. I, I spent a little bit of time living in my white four door Honda Accord in the parking lot of a grocery store. And I could look on that time as a huge mistake. And maybe it was and, and a failure and my inability to stand on my own two feet as an adult. But I look back on it now as proof that I don't need all the trappings that I have to survive. Like I have a a pretty cushy life. Uh, My friends from my old neighborhood that I grew up in would call me soft uh, today, but I don't mind it. And I'm able to have that positive outlook because I know I could go back and do that because I've done it already. Mm-hmm. I could go live in a car. I could be homeless. You know, I could yeah. be around a bunch of negative people that aren't going anywhere and still thrive within that context. I've done that. I have that basis and I choose to look at it that way. Like, Hey, uh, it's all good. Whereas if I hadn't have done that and, and somehow everything got taken away from me, if I hadn't had that past, Oh my God, I'd probably fall apart. Yeah. You know, I'd I'd be on suicide watch, maybe who knows, but not now I could go, I could go live in a cardboard box for a while. 
<laughs> I, I honestly feel that way. Like I could yeah. do it. Uh, I wouldn't but be I happy, think, but I could do it. Yeah. But because you have found out that, you know, eventually things are going to be okay. That's right. Right. Like when you have gone through that experience and you just know that you have, that you can, you know, get out of it. Yeah. Like that fear is not in there anymore. Yeah. And you find out how to use your best skills. You know, it's, I've never really psychoanalyzed myself to until this very moment and thinking about like how I got out of that jam. Cause you, you brought it up and I, really I leaned heavily on my, my charisma and sort of my gift of gab. I was able to talk to people and I talked my way into sleeping on someone's floor while their floor because the couch was already taken by another guy like me who was, who was equally as charismatic and had the gift of gab. He was better than me because he got the couch. And, of uh, and so, but, but Hey, uh, I'm, you know, I'm ambitious. So I worked my way up from the floor to the couch in his apartment. And, um, when that guy moved out and that was all I needed, that was stability that allowed me to do some different things. I mean, it's amazing what, what you can accomplish if you can just get your, baseline needs handled, then you can go out and get a job interview or you can do some different things or create. So, uh, I think a lot of people who are in that jam are really just, they're like one layer of Maslow's hierarchy of need away from like doing what they want to do or being able to at least try to do those things. Um, I want to get into, uh, some of the film stuff and this audience, uh, has come to know us for, uh, uh, revealing and trying to unpack some of the ways that um, incredibly productive independent filmmakers like yourself and Guillermo, by the way, Ivan, um, uh, uh, have, um, you know, how you've done it, those tools and unpacking those tools and processes. So a lot of your storylines, you just mentioned the other side of things. They are painful storylines. They're um, impactful are they at all autobiographical? How do you, uh, as a, as a team and your production company is golden. Am I pronouncing this right? Seba? Seba. Seba. Golden Seba Productions. And we'll talk about that in a second. How do you come up with your movie ideas? Well, honestly, it's been pretty organic. Um, Havana Instant was particularly a story that Guillermo uh, wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. He grew up in Cuba and uh, he grew up in that neighborhood where we shot the movie. And um, and it's pretty interesting because before uh, he wrote that movie, we were in Cannes, in in Cannes, in the market, Mm -hmm. in the film market. Uh, We had done... Uh, a very indie indie movie, um, the first one that we did in completely in English, and it was called Blue Family. Mm-hmm. And we were like shopping it around, and it has it had a uh, a screening in the market. So we took some meetings with other producers and people introducing Golden Saba and what we wanted to do. So we met with one producer. You, you know how those meetings are. They could be yeah. very nice, <laughs> condescending, or they could be yeah. very nasty, or they could be yeah. genuine. So you have the whole, you know, package. So we're with this producer, and he goes and like, you're doing what? But you are, where are you from? 
And he was saying, I'm from Mexico, but I grew up in Cuba. And he was like, where are you from? Well, I'm from Venezuela. I grew up in Venezuela. I've lived in Colombia. And you're doing what? Yeah. And movies in English? Well, go back to your roots. Do what you, like, you have to do Latino movies. And it was like an awful meeting. And we left like, how dare him? Like, he doesn't know what we're doing and what we're building. And we want to, you know, be international and this and this and that. But then it kept us thinking. And we were like, well, there is something that we should just consider. Mm -hmm. And uh, why don't we do something that's about our roots? It doesn't mean that we are just going to focus on Latina content, but we should probably, yeah, like instead of continuing like here, you know, asking for money for, you know, big or, you know, high budget movies when we have no credentials, let's just, let's go and do something with what we have, you know, let's put it out there. And that was kind of like, how Havana Einstein started, like Guillermo came back to, he was living in New York at a time. I was in, still in Venezuela and I, I was, I was in Colombia and Mexico, but I went to Venezuela, I went back to Venezuela at that time. And he wrote the script like in three weeks. Wow. And, uh, and he told me we're, we're doing this movie. Let's do it in Cuba. We didn't know how let's do it in my neighborhood. And we just need, you know, camera and people and petty cash for, you know, food and, you know, and let's, let's make it happen. Right. Was that story real, by the way, was the storyline of that autobiographical or was that, did he just come up with that out of his mind? Some some moments, but not the, the ALS is not, it's not real. Yeah. That's, that's even more remarkable to have that kind of concept and, and, and knock it out (laughs) week. Sorry. Sorry to interject. Go ahead. Yeah, no, and then I went to Colombia. I gathered with a group of friends, filmmaker friends, and um, one of them said, I'll put the camera. Um, my best friend, who's also the other actress in the movie, Abril, she brought some money for to buy for the tickets, and we put together a team. The DP came from Colombia. It's an amazing DP, but he loved the idea, and he jumped on board, and so he, we were, like, figuring out how we would, you know, kind of like smuggle the camera into Cuba because we were not going to go like the government route, right? So, and we were like, okay, you take the tripod <laughs> and you'll take the brain and you'll do this. And so, do you, do you remember what, what you guys shot that on? What camera? What uh, kind of red, camera? On a red. It was a red. red you guys camera. had a red? Yeah. All right. Wow. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so it was like, everything was meant to be, uh, we got to this neighborhood and we were like sleeping. Like we, we lived the Cuban experience. Everybody like, you know, we were in the house of the woman who raised Guillermo and, uh, she would sleep in the couch in the, in the living room. So to give us (laughs) her, uh, bedroom and, you know, another neighbor was hosting somebody else and, you know, the other neighbor and, you know, she was doing the catering and, you know, breakfast was bread, <laughs> bread I was, was going to ask, how did you do cra- crafting? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so a lot of coffee, but it was a beautiful experience because, you know, something that I, 
that I take with me in that project. It was my first time producing, so I was scared. Right, uh, right, right. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have internet. We had nothing. Like I have to do the, you know, the call sheets, like by hand, handwriting. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, paste it in the in the door. Yeah. In the office, you know, uh, um, room, but that was like the house where we were seeing. So every time after we finished like uh, the day, everybody would have to go and see what was happening the next day because I had no way to print. I had no way to just, you know, send emails or anything. Wow. So, but it was beautiful. I bet your handwriting like, was unbelievable. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> they managed to understand what it was. Yeah. So, but it was beautiful because we were shooting in the neighborhood and, you know, the neighbors would see us and they come and offer coffee out of the blue. They were helping us. They were excited that. that we were there. So I saw, I was able to experience so much um, empathy from people who had absolutely nothing yeah. and, and people who were even able to share and to split and, you know, to give, but they don't have, you know, the, their little coffee, their room, their water. When we run out of, out of water in like some of the apartments were running out of water, they will like shower here and have some extra water, you know, like the old school. So it was so beautiful. Every, it was a beautiful experience for everybody. And, yeah. and I think that's the magic of that project in particular. There's something about an indie set when everybody pitches in, especially the community. Uh, one of our feature films we did uh, named Adult Interference, uh, we had a similar situation. And this is a movie you can see all over the world. It, uh, it's Kate Upton's last feature film. And meanwhile, we had one of the writers, uh, Ted Welch, his mom making the the food, amazing food, by the way, for the whole crafty. So we had no crafty expense. Uh, in another one of our movies, another version of you, it was done in sort of the artsy part of, of one. Well, part of it was shot in the artsy part of Nashville. It was also shot in Iceland and in France. And when we were in Nashville, all these coffee shops, all the little local businesses, they came and pitched in, helped us out. We got locations for free. And that's just like the true indie way. That's, uh, that's yeah, incredible. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah. I will circle back. I want to see your Cuba. movies. Oh, please. I'll send you, I'll send you some links. Please. And, um, by the way, when I saw Abril dancing with Christopher in uh, Havana instant, a song came to mind. I'm going to send you that song as well. Uh, that I thought, oh, what if, what if this were the score? Uh, so, and uh, you can send it to her. I think she might get a, might get a kick out of it. Um, I do want to just circle back to the name again, Golden Seba Productions. It's so for the audience, this is spelled C-E-I-B-A. And it's a tree in the Mayan culture that has uh, a special meaning. So I'm curious, my company is also named after a tree and there's a reason why. So uh, Bonsai Creative. Why did you name yeah. your company after a tree? What does the Seba tree mean to you and Guillermo? Well, uh, two things. Uh, for Guillermo, in the more uh, personal um, aspect of it, it, when he was studying in Cuba and he was starving and he had nothing, he would just go and study under a big Seba tree that they have oh, in Cuba. 
yeah. in, in the downtown in Cuba. It's insanely big. And, uh, and it has, you know, a lot of, you know, their African traditions and cultures attribute that tree with a lot of power. And, you know, you give, you, you, you give tribute to that tree. You can just kind oh, of like pray it. to the tree and all that. But in the, but, but that tree in many, um, cultures in Latin America, including the Mayan, is like the connection between earth and heaven right okay yeah. and uh and the place that shelters you know living species so we found we found that that was kind of like sort of what we wanted to do to create a big family and to be creative with friends and that we can shelter and that we can just you know like the branches in the tree you know create something that connects you know above and beyond it's very beautiful. And now that I come to think of it, I, I want to say Darren Aronofsky, who is my favorite director, mm-hmm. he had a movie called The Fountain, and it featured a tree, and I think it was a Siba tree. I will go back and check that out. I think it that was the fountain of youth or the, like the eternal um, life, tree of life, basically. Yeah. Was. yeah. Um, so I'm going to go check that out. Thank you so much for giving me that, that background. Guillermo grew up in Cuba. I didn't know that until you told me, I don't know how many filmmakers come out of Cuba. My guess would be that not many, uh, feel free yeah. to correct me. I'm, I'm curious what his ambition and talent has meant to the community in Cuba. Do you know? Yeah, well, again, uh, the way when we go, when we have been back to Cuba and especially shooting movies, like there is this period of, you know, the community is proud, right? It's mm-hmm. proud of him. And, and, and I think they have, he's very, like, they loved him so much in there because he's not Cuban. He's Mexican, Right. When, when and he was he was a um, an actor kid in Mexico because he he does he does come from a family of filmmakers and artists oh, okay. so he has that in, mm-hmm. in his um, blood. Mm-hmm. So when he, he was here, he he was into sports here. Then his best friend passed away in because of one of the movies he had done as a hobby. He he got a scholarship in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, go, he went to Cuba and, uh, he took it, uh, because, you know, her, his best friend had passed away and he couldn't go back to sports. So he goes to Cuba and he takes a scholarship, but he needed to do like, uh, to finish high school. So he finished high school in Cuba and then he did the whole career in Cuba, but he wasn't. He was not in a good uh, economic situation. His family, he goes there and he gets robbed. So he's, he was raised like a Cuban kid. And this amazing woman, she just took him under his wings. She was a single mother with two kids. And, and she said, I'll feed you. You'll, you'll have a, a roof. Amazing. And you came here to study and you're going to study. Right. Yeah. So he has that sense of, you know, giving back to that community because you know that to this day she's his mom yeah and uh and he goes back to cuba and he never like every time he 
can. He, he brings a project and then he gives some work because it's a very, very, like, it's a poor community. It's, yeah. uh, they struggle with a lot of, you know, scarcity and, and necessity. So when we go and it's like, we teach you how to do certain things, we employ you, we, you know, give you salary and, uh, and it's like the way to contribute back to everything that, you know, they did as a community for him and, and how he, I mean, like teenager uh, years are like the years that could affect your, you know, uh, who you are, who you become as an adult. And, and he spent those years in Cuba. So he has, he's like as Cuban as he could be Mexican. Got it. Yeah, that's a, it's a beautiful story. And yeah. I'm curious for you to tell me the trick, the secret of getting an American-made movie out of Cuba. Habana Instant was the first movie in 50 years to do this. Yeah. It's no little feat. I think I have a sense after that story as to how you were able to do it. Yeah. Are there any tricks for filmmakers who didn't grow up the way Guillermo grew up to shoot in Cuba and actually well, get their you, film out you of know, there? No, no. Now it's more open in that regard. You can always go like the, you know, the, the, um, Avengers route and, you know, <laughs> give the government a yeah. lot of money and just, you, you, you know, uh, yeah. get it done. Mm -hmm. But now there are more like independent filmmakers in Cuba who can even offer those services and they can just, prepare everything for you as a filmmaker to come there and, and shoot, you know, uh, would you recommend doing the location scout remote, yeah, and, like and, hiring and, somebody know, to do it there versus yeah, you like going yourself producing with them? Yeah. Okay. But they are, they are not the governmental entity. They are independent filmmakers. Got so it. they know how to, you know, to make sure that you have, you know, what you need and that you like now, in the after, I think that when Obama opened the um, relations again with Cuba, there was a lot of, you know, aperture in that regard. Oh, got um, it. Yeah. I don't know how it is now. Honestly, after the pandemic, things have gotten really rough in in Cuba. But but yeah, I mean, I I know that there there were filmmaking companies that like the last time we went to shoot Rumba Love, mm -hmm. um, we had to do a pickup like yeah. the year before we premiere, we had to do pickups in Cuba. And in, in this time we didn't go the route of smuggling the camera and just getting into <laughs> trouble. We rented yeah. the camera from a film production company, an independent one in Cuba. Okay. And so sense. they help us find locations. And so it was, you know, it was way easier. And of course you're not, I mean, you know, you, your your uh, scripts cannot obviously be against, you know, the government, political, like uh, communism, right. and, and our stories are nothing of the sort. So, so that's yeah. also something to take into consideration if you want to just, you know, well, talk like speak bad about the yeah. communism <laughs> and the whole thing, and then just uh, try to do something, then it's not going to be possible. Right. Right. You don't film Hunt for Red October in Russia. Uh, yeah. And uh, something else we did with our first movie is like we we didn't bring any American crew because also it was it was hard, you know, for Americans oh, wow. couldn't okay. just, you know, get in. After Obama, we brought 
we were doing a van of darkness and we and like we arrived like two weeks after Obama went to Cuba mm-hmm. and and they opened the embassy and the whole thing. And we had an amazing story with our um, first uh, assistant director. Yeah. He is this, you know, 70 years old, red, <laughs> big guy, you know, American. And he's amazing. He's he's a great stunt coordinator. He's done yeah. a lot of Hollywood movies and, and the whole thing. And um, so he was scared, but he wanted to go. So we took him to Cuba. He had a blast. Last day, we, we wrap. Everything's great. And we go to just hang out and show Cuba to everybody because we didn't have the chance before. And we show them all the experience from taking the guagua and, you know, public transportation and, you know, the whole thing. On our way back, we're taking the guagua and it's like rush hour and it's like Now, what is a guagua? It's like a bus, like the bus. Okay, got it, okay. The public transportation where, but, you know, with like a hundred people inside. Right. Yeah. yeah so, exactly. so we're getting back in the bus and, uh, and we say, just careful with your pockets. No problem. We get in five minutes later, he starts, I don't have my password. I don't have my <laughs> password. We stopped the Wawa. Like people were like, we don't have your passport. Move on, blah, blah. So we arrive home. And we were supposed to take, you know, to to get out of Cuba the next day. But he lost his American passport in Cuba. Oh, my gosh. So we were into this crisis. He was like into this crisis. And the only thing we could do is was like, you know, take him to the embassy. Right. The American embassy that was just open two weeks ago. Uh, But there was a lot of confusion. You know, we didn't know what, what to expect. So. So they went to the embassy. Uh, they let him in, of course, only him, not Guillermo, not me. Right. And uh, he stood there like for three, four hours. And then he comes back and he says, well, I'm done. I have a passport. They apologized to me. I was the only American in the whole building. They mm. apologized to me because it took them so long to figure out how to make a passport because it's the first time after you know, 1959 that, you know, an American passport is made in Cuba. Oh, wow. So he has the first passport made in Cuba after the whole revolution. So I assume there's some person in Cuba walking around and traveling the world under his name that actually has his real passport. Probably. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a, it's like a a blessing on on both sides, maybe who, who, who knows? Um, I know that you guys, uh, at, at GCP, uh, talk about sort of, um, having a different model for indie filmmakers. Uh, what is your approach to financing? Well, we have, what I think it's happening is that like our industry moves and changes so fast mm-hmm. that you have to kind of like figure out a way to keep up with things that worked. Like our first movies were friends and family, equity, investment, contributions. Mm -hmm. We have then, you know, partnered up with like Welcome to Acapulco was a mix between a co-production with Bulgari. They brought half of the money. We went to Acapulco and we brought 
government incentives like catering, security, transportation, accommodation oh. with the relationships we had with that state in particular. And so it's been a mix. We have done brands, you know, product placement and brands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, I cannot tell you that one thing, it's the only thing that works. Um, what I know for a fact is that nowadays it's harder to, to get like private investors, right? People are more, you know, because of all the streaming platforms and, you know, of all the access to content, you know, sometimes it's hard to bring a model to return investment. So now we're like focusing more on brands willing to do product placement I know I, we haven't gotten there yet, but I know a lot of people are using NFT as mm -hmm. a way to invest and to, to raise money. And, uh, and of course, you know, going to the States, like if it's in the U S like with tax rebates, it always helps a lot and a mix, a little bit of everything. It's like what seems to be working for even crowdfunding for certain, um, projects but I think it's just like you have to be like like the water, <laughs> like Bruce yeah. Lee says. Like Bruce and Lee, just, yeah. you know, One of our favorite quotes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it just, you know, see where the opportunity is. Sometimes we just like with the flowers, we partnered up with the hotel, the resort, and they gave us all the accommodation, the food, the locations. And we created a series of uh, not only the product placement, that it's, you know, the hotel is like another character in the series but also we did like commercials for them and you know pictures and things that would help their marketing campaign so that's how we have been doing yeah and, I and think some you, uh, other projects where it's just like we offer the production services and they bring the money and and we can probably contribute with certain if you like shoot in mexico it's like a partnership yeah. then it's like, hey, we'll yeah. bring the production. You bring the money. Let's let's make this yeah. thing happen. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's like a co-production. And on the NFT thing, and or, or wet slash Web three, I'm seeing DAOs, so these decentralized organizations, where um, I mean, the one that made the news is that a DAO tried to buy, I think, like the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. Or, or something like that. It was something giant where it was going to cost millions and millions of dollars. And they raised, they, they almost raised enough money to get it. But basically uh, it runs through smart contracts on web three, uh, probably through Ethereum or Ethereum two, which is coming. And every person in the DAO owns a little bit, like gets a royalty payment from the profits of the film. But because DAOs don't, like if you have a syndicate investment group, I think like you have to cap out at 250 people. And if you have like these, there are all these different rules. Like if you go equity investor, you know, your investors still have to be accredited or maybe it's just a gift. And then, you know, with Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you're kind of like competing against every single person that wants money in the world. Whereas if you mm -hmm. can create a DAO, it's like a group just for your, just for your production company or just for your films and they all kind of pitch in and there can be a million people in your DAO. Like they can literally just give a dollar each. And so I think it's a really interesting future. And I haven't seen any independent film really truly take advantage of it 
to its full capacity yet. So yeah. I'm curious to see what you guys end up doing with that and what others, others end up doing. With yeah. That. I, I gotta, I gotta confess. I'm like, I have a lot to study in that regard because, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, I, I, I don't remember which actor also like raised, you know, a lot of money, like famous Hollywood actor, and you know they stole the nft the character and just they sold like crazy yeah. <laughs> amount of money yeah. uh but also it goes down to the same you know marketing thing when you put something like in the in the web <laughs> yeah so it's like if no one knows about you like you get lost in that you know deep web right mm -hmm. so you have to figure out a way to just you know be seen kind yep. of like what you mentioned of indiegogo and and all this crowdfunding like how many movies you'll see there right right, right. so then and then it, it'll end up being like you'll have to start with your friends and family again yeah unless you know there is you know there is a lot of creativity that you need to put into you know turning You're around building that. And, yeah. and and building up right yeah so but that's but yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think that's the future, and 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 we all need to like to survive. We need to adapt, and we need to evolve with all the trends, you know. And and this is coming, and this is not going back any soon. So yeah, it'll it'll go up and down like any market. Yeah, does, yeah. But it's not going back to your point. It's not going yeah. away. And yeah, it's not frankly, going away. Creators like yourself have a massive advantage because you're already a storyteller and all an NFT is a story is a narrative about why something is valuable. A mm -hmm. lot of things are just a narrative about why something is valuable. Yeah. The U S dollars you have in your pocket are just paper, but we have yeah. a narrative because it's not backed by gold or any other kind of money. It's strictly fiat. Uh, most of the money yeah. we use is digital. It's never printed. I think 99% of all money is digital. And so yeah. we tell ourselves a narrative and a story about why this has value and why it will it's buy so bread. True. And yeah. we can do the same thing with our own projects uh, on Web3, through Ethereum, and, and through NFT. So I'm, I'm excited to see what's next. Um, I noticed that you and Guillermo both studied at the New York City Drama School HB studio yeah. and uh i want to say that's for herbert Berghoff. i need to study him more. yeah i know I don't, the Hagen, I, yeah i don't know exactly he obviously did some great things in acting i need to uh shame on me i need to look up that some more uh you guys had already acted before you attended so i'm just curious did it improve your acting skills do you recommend acting school for all the actors because one thing that stands out about you is your attention to the eye line. I noticed that you're really good at that. And it might just be the fact that, you know, you have super sincere eyes and it really shows up on camera. It's one of, one of my favorite features of your acting is how you're able to humanize yourself, which is super difficult when you're as frankly, as beautiful as you are. Right. So it's like, Oh, that's a real person. Um, so with all that context, what would you say about acting school and what advice would you give to actors that are thinking I, about it or not thinking about it? Yeah, I loved it. Like I, I wouldn't change that experience for anything. And I just want to remind you that I, I came from like studying acting in Spanish and then, you know, doing content in Spanish 
and transitioning and acting in a different language. And clearly it's not my, like, it's not my, my English is not like, you know, <laughs> my second language. Like if I had, you know, like any Latinos that are born and raised in the U S right. Right. So, so the transition was very difficult and, you know, going back to school after being working for so long, but going back to school in English and, you know, being exposed to techniques and, and to books and to literature that, you know, that was new to me mm-hmm. was like a great experience. And I think my creative awakening after, after going to school was, you know, kind of like in, in, in part because like my creative Creative awakening as a writer, especially came after that period. That was the first time I dared to, you know, play around with, you know, lines and, and thinking about like the short, the, the, the theater play and, you know, and it all came from that. So I, I strongly recommend it to my Latino friends. i recommend them to do it in English because many of them go to New York and go to LA and take the Spanish classes. And it's just like, you already have that in you. Yeah. It's Um, already a strength. And I think studying is, you know, it's useful for, you know, for everybody like training. It's like when you're not acting every day, you know, going to school is a way to train your craft. Right. So, so yeah, I definitely recommend it. And I, I I was lucky because I did it many years after Guillermo. So I knew like the teachers that I want to experience and, you know, I, I had that guidance in that regard. So, so I had a blast. Perfect. Perfect. You heard it here first, right from uh, the mind of Zaire. Uh, And you mentioned earlier, this is a callback. Now you are welcome to not answer this. <laughs> so I'll preface that, but you mentioned earlier in the conversation that when you did Habana instant, it changed your life professionally and personally. Now, when you said personally, is that because you met Guillermo there and, and kind of fell in love there or, or no, no, we have met, Way before we met in Colombia, we shot okay. this movie together. Uh, he was a director; I was just an actress, and okay. uh, and we we met way before. Then we <clears throat> we had some we spent some time between Mexico and and Colombia, and with this movie, the the first one that I told you, Blue Family, that we took to Cannes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and and so we've been together in Cuba. To me, what I what I meant by it changed my life personally and professionally is because one thing that I already told you, like seeing the human kindness in that people in that community that had nothing and still they were willing to share and give was heartbreaking for me. The fact that you can, that it challenged me as a producer that I hadn't been before right? because I had to figure out how to sort out things, not <laughs> yeah. with the, you know, common sense, yeah. but I it's, needed it's to use cats. creativity. Yeah. You know, I needed to figure out like we had one day that, you know, 
the the uh, we have a, a power shortage and we had no light and we needed to uh, plug in the batteries for the camera. Or how did you they, how did you get around that? Just just for the audience to know, like what so, if the power goes well, out on them, that, what, do, what do you do? It was like a moment, like half an hour, like just figuring out it's coming, it's not coming. No one knows it's Cuba, like. You have no idea of anything. People in there have no idea of anything. Right? So they could tell you it could be the whole day. It could be two hours. It could, so, and it's like, and yeah. I have, you know, AD and director telling me, like, we need to make the day. Right? And I'm right. like, so what do we do? So, and then I start at asking the Cubans and they're like, no, it's just the neighborhood. Like, we can go to uh, the other neighborhood and they have electricity. So, well, let's do it. And then you have the cars and, and that was another, you know, nightmare to deal with the gas and the cars waiting for yeah, 15, all the 20 cars minutes. Are old there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and the gas was an issue to get expensive and blah, blah. So I, I, I get into a car, they drop me in another neighborhood. I'm clearly, I'm not from there. Yeah. And they yeah, yeah. know it. <laughs> and I'm here with my batteries, right? Yeah. Asking you know, knocking on doors and asking people if they let me just plug in the cameras for a while because we're doing something in the other neighborhood. And so, but, but again, it was like the human kindness. Like I managed to get where to plug. I just sat there outside in the street, like waiting for, you know, the batteries to, to get charged. And then two hours later, I came back with the battery on time for the change. And then we made the day. And then like, the light, uh, the energy came back like, you know, at night. So yeah. for the next day, we were good again. You were good But, again. you know, those kind of things like challenged me and right. changed me because, you know, this side, again, I told you before, like when you're an actor, you're just like into your, you know, craft and trying to, you deal with you, with yourself and, and, and you're just acting and that's it. Right. But here, like being a producer with no resources, like made me understand that there's, you know, this, the power of willpower. Right. And, and how many things you can, you can do it. If you like my imagination and my creativity, like boomed and, uh, and it also made me see that I could do it, that I could produce. I was scared to death at the beginning yeah, because I was going to produce and I had never done it. Yeah. Concrete all, I, all I knew about producing was like bringing coffee that I did a lot as well. <laughs> Which but, is like a, yeah, you know, like, a, like you knew how to PA, PA but you didn't yeah, know how to produce. PA, yeah. Craft to PA. <laughs> yeah. And it's weird. It's like you conquer fear and then you realize it's all paper tigers and you know, you can, you can do it. Um, the reason selfishly that I asked about, uh, maybe falling in love on set is because I have noticed uh, a few different times in my experience, people fall in love on set and then they fall out of love as soon as the movie is over. Yeah. I'm curious if you, can you give us any tips? Do you know, like, how can you tell if set love is real love? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> what, I don't know. What I can tell you um, from my experience is that um, Guillermo and I clicked 
from the audition um, session. And then we had a beautiful rehearsal time in that movie. It was a movie with resources. So we were rehearsing for a month. Mm-hmm. And during the rehearsals, we, you know, developed a friendship and, you know, we were sharing, we were having, you know, dinner if we could. And we were, you know, and I was, I was also like, you know, mesmerized because he was an actor, but he and his friends, Mm -hmm. you know, were acting, but they were directing and they were producing and they were like, oh my God, like, who are these people? They can do everything. right? Right. And that's where I started to be like, and he was, uh, like finishing color correction on a previous movie. And he invited the crew like the cast to see the process, you know, and we went there and, and, and I was, I hadn't been, I'd been only in a post-production room to do ADR, Mm -hmm. but that's it. Yeah. So I was there seeing a session, how it were like, no, just go back. Just there, we need, you know, here, lower the volume here. You need, we need to ADR this here. We need to do like uh, follies here. We, like, and I was like, how, how, how do you know? I don't hear anything. Right. I, <laughs> I, I don't notice everything, anything. Yeah. And it was color and sound. I remember. So, but that got me curious about it. And then, I don't know, I think we develop, you know, common interests beside just being actors. And Got we it. were talking, and again, it was not only the two of us, but it was like a group of friends. And we were talking about doing our own stuff, you know, producing more, um, creating our own opportunities. And that sounded really challenging and, and exciting. So, but we, so we were on the same page in things that we wanted to explore and do more of. So, the rest is but I, I don't, I, I think all I said doesn't answer your question. I know that. <laughs> I don't know how yeah, to. I, sometimes think you time, just, I think time will tell yeah, time. you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. Time and time and take a chance and be willing to uh, be let down explore. with grace. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. that's. That's actually something I think is kind of missing uh, in the when I, when I go out and look at how relationships play out uh, in the world or on social media in particular. It's like everyone's so cynical. It's like who who told you every single thing you get involved in was going to be perfect and work out for you? Who gave you yeah. that expectation? Yeah, uh, you know, maybe it was your boomer mother or something. I don't know, but it, it's not the real world at, at it's all. Not. And and things can go bad. And that's okay. You just move, you know, move forward yeah. with, with grace. But I, I think it's also it's 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 the society. It's you know, it's I think it comes from like it's what's expected from us. Like you go to a job and you're not. They, they don't expect you to fail. Yeah. If yeah. you fail, you get fired. They did, you know, yeah, it's yeah. everything the others expect from us is to be perfect. And then yeah. there is no space for mistakes. And I'm telling you, like producing this first movie, I made a lot of mistakes, right? That's the only way to learn. I yeah. keep making mistakes. We have a series on we, the podcast called Mistakes in the Making. We would love for you to do one. And it's all about things you, there's no way you could learn it in film school or acting school. And you just have totally. to experience those mistakes. They're like three to five minutes long. And they've been so popular 
that we just are flooded with requests to do them now from uh, different creatives that we've interviewed uh, because they, you know, the other cool thing about what Guillermo did is that I think a lot of creatives are like that. They're like, Hey, we're doing this. You guys should come see the session. You guys should see what it's like, get the experience as long as you're within the circle of trust. Like, Hey, come mm-hmm. in. Let's like, I'll share my skill set, my experience with you. And I think yeah. that's what's happening with this podcast and with the mistakes in the making that series yeah. that we do. There's a hunger to share uh, in that spirit. Um, what are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career and who did they come from? Well, uh, the first one would be don't wait until you're ready. Mm. Cause you'll never be ready. Like, let me study a lot. Let me wait until I have a better English. Let me wait until I study more production. Yeah. Let me shadow so many directors to direct the first thing. And, and then you have 10, 20, 30 years and you have done nothing because you're waiting that, you know, specific moment when you feel you're ready. Yeah. And you're never ready. So to me, it's like the earlier you can start like, jumping on things and making those mistakes, the earlier you're going to learn. Right. I love that. I mean, that's, I think that's the most important one. And, um, and the other one would be just kill the mind. So kill I don't think mind. that much, you know, <laughs> I love, I love that as well. That's like a, that's almost like a, a succinct way of saying number one, or maybe you say number two first, kill the mind, then just go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I love, yeah, makes I, sense. I, I love both makes of sense. those. Um, you've and been it's, on, it's, it's an actor's, uh, like you have, as an actor, you have to kill the mind when you're on set, because if you're thinking, then you're not, and it's, you're not connecting. Right. And it's yeah. so hard, like to kill the mind sometimes, oh, especially when, if you see, like, if you see the director, like didn't, didn't smile back. So, he, and then you start, he didn't like it. I'm, I'm not doing it well or he, whatever. And that's it. Yeah. It's over. Create yeah. like for your creativity and for your craft. So, but, but it applies to everything to producing or to any creative endeavor. Yeah. It, all you have to do to test that is to meditate. So I have my meditation session that I do. I did it uh, yesterday. Um, and this one was for 30 minutes and for the first 20 minutes, it was all monkey mind. Yeah. I thought of money. I thought of my to-do list. Yeah. I'm supposed to be silent and relaxed. I'm supposed to be kind of saying my mantra over and over again. And I'm saying that it's almost like counting sheep. I'm saying it, but in between that is you better do this. You better not forget to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, you're hungry. Oh, you're on a diet though. And then it's like, and then you think about sex and then you think about this. It's like, you're thinking about all of the like, primordial kind of bullshit that, that clogs your brain. And then for the last 10 minutes I hit it and it was like, Oh, I was totally clear. So clear. I almost felt like I was floating. I almost fell asleep. And so it, that just that 10 minutes of clarity was great. But that 20 minutes just shows you, yeah. uh, that is what you're thinking about even when you're not being quiet mm-hmm. and just the fact that you were quiet. Now it became magnified and elevated and you're like, wow, this is my brain. My brain yeah. is on nonstop. I need to kill that and and flatten my ego and do all these other things so that I can make a pathway for that creative or, or what um, you know. One of my music mentors told me let letting God in the room, so to speak. Um, 
You talked about the, the skill of acting. If you had one month to teach a brand new actor, actress, uh, how to get prepared for a role, what would be the first three things you'd teach them? Um, well, I think I would go back to what I've learned in, especially in HB studio. Mm -hmm. And, um, the first thing would be, you know, know your previous circumstance, you know, build, know everything you can about your role and, um, know your physicality. You know, there are amazing exercises about physicality, which are like, Mm -hmm. it's difficult to just like, when you see when you see an actor, right, and and he has to talk and he has to cook at the same time, that's one of the most difficult things to do. Like when you're, you know, training because you're you cannot like, you know, <laughs> do both at a time. You're focused on the lines and the intention, and this is not organic. Right. So so like so there are so many amazing exercises in that regard, just to combine both of them and it's the more you know your character and the previous circumstances and the objective what you want from this from the scene and have the intention of sending an action with every single line as we do in real life and then the moment you step on on stage where you're on the set just you know you already worked on that and now just be you and be present and receive receive listen Mm. to the other many times we as actors make the mistake of you know waiting for their line to finish to tell our lines and have a preconception of how we want it to sound or what emotion we want to endow in this particular moment and that's not working Mm -hmm. most of the time so the more you listen and then you're connected as in any conversation, then I don't have to pretend I'm acting. I'm just like, I mean, I'm seeing you right now. You're not pretending that you're listening or paying attention to me or understanding what I'm saying. You're just there doing it organically. Right. But as actors, we usually like tend to be like, let me, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm listening. So I have to be, (laughs) you know, moved here in this word or, and then that that's, that's not working. So and that's a, like being present is, I think, one of the hardest exercises, you know, as an actor. Yes. And we yes. go back to what we were talking about, you know, killing the mind, especially right. when you are on stage or on set or in life in general. I think acting is very, very like life itself, you know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, the art imitating life or vice versa. And so for those listening at home, Number one is know your lines uh, so that you know can your lines. Yeah. Organic. Number two is be listening uh, and present, not just yeah. wait for your counterparts line to end. And third is kill the mind so you can be clear and, and yeah. do it as you do it in real life. And uh, this conversation just has been uh, 
so amazing. I, I have to tell you, I've learned it's so been much. Amazing, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I know you. Like I've known you my whole life, which is what I love. I love yeah. that feeling at the at the we end of a to, conversation. We have to. We have to do something together. Now we do. Yes, that's exactly how I feel. I feel like we should do a co-production yeah. together. Being set together, we have to create something, and we have to just go and do it, and then we'll do a podcast. How about that exactly exactly and <laughs> i just can't thank you enough for I, you're you're in mexico city right now you just came off set you took some time for this audience and for me and that means the world to me can, can you tell and to us can you uh, tell everybody where they can find you on social media on the internet where they can even see some of your work and you have a lot of work by the way uh our website is uh golden um, we have like our projects there. Uh, we, I personally use, uh, my favorite social media is Instagram. I'm on Instagram as at Zaire Montes, my, my name. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but I have to confess that I don't use it that much. And, uh, and yeah, and I'm, I'm Instagram. I always post, I mean, a lot of jokes and silly, silly stuff, but I also, every, every time we have a premiere or we're shooting something or some, something new that we want to share, uh, uh, I use Instagram a lot. Beautiful. And you have a great page, by the way. Uh, we'll end on this. You are a lover of cheese and you love Venezuelan street food. So what is your favorite cheese in Venezuelan street food and please educate me on what latin sour cream is on what what latin sour cream is <laughs> well uh, first of all um cheese i love old cheese honestly I'm, <laughs> I, think, I think i'm i'm like a mouse but i love <laughs> there is one venezuelan cheese that i crave a lot a lot mm-hmm. it's called Queso de mano, mm-hmm. kind of like hand cheese. Yeah. It's like the type of fresh cheese. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm going to do a research. If I find that any Venezuelan place in, in Tennessee where you can yeah, get you it, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll figure out so you can try it. It's hard to explain, but it's a fresh cheese and, uh, and it's very particular. Um, it's good to feel arepas. I don't know if oh, like, yeah, I love talking about street, yeah. like Venezuelan street food, yeah. arepas are like my favorite. Like I usually, I have them for breakfast a lot. Mm-hmm. I love them. They're and, so good. um, have you tried? Yeah. I've had an arepa. I've had arepas? a lot of those. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love them. Yeah. Okay. Big fan. So we have yeah, that in common yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Good. But I'm have sure they're like I'm sure they're like a ton better uh, for in sure. Venezuela. I don't yeah. think I've had like the real deal because I've had them here and just like yeah. around the United States. Yeah. I do remember um, going to Guatemala and I was getting some street tacos in Guatemala, and I noticed that they were like using this white powder to pat out their tortilla, and it was so delicious looking. And I asked one of the ladies, I said, "So what is that powder?" And she's like, "Oh, chalk." I said, like cooking chalk, like you mean like, you mean like uh, flour? She goes, no, no, chalk. And I was like, oh my God, I've been eating chalk. They use real, they, I guess it doesn't get anybody sick. And it didn't get me sick, 
but they're using chalk like from the chalkboard. Oh wow! Yeah, to yeah. To pad yeah. out their tortillas and cook them on the. Yeah. Well, I'm um, like. I didn't know. And, that and I, I hear you. There is something about tortillas and tacos in particular, like. Mm-hmm. Something happens, like even if it's the same Mexican <laughs> who does it here and then he goes to the States yeah. and then everything changes. I don't uh, know. I think it has to do with the water, the flour, the, I don't know. But like also every time I come, now that I'm in Mexico City, I'm like taking advantage of all street all food, the good, tacos and stuff. burritos and, you know, the real deal. <laughs> I love it. I'm a foodie. I love eating. So I I always tell people the best food might have four wheels. You know, the best restaurant might just be like a, a a Mexican or Venezuelan taco stand on the side of the road. Don't sleep on it. Um, because Hey, I mean, they, they get in small shop. They get to focus on a couple of things. They're really, really great at, like they're great at tortas. They're great at arepas. They're great at tacos. That's all they do. And boom. That's a good situation mm. for you. So, yeah. uh, and this has been a great situation for us. Everyone listening, do go out and watch her films. Uh, you can find them all over the internet. I know I watched Habana Instant, which was a great independent film. Guys, you can learn from watching this movie. This movie was made in Cuba and it was made uh, by the skin of their teeth. And you won't believe what you see on the screen. The performances are amazing. And I watched it on Tubi. Uh, it's other, there are other places you can watch it. Her new film, Barumba Love, is out. Flowers, the Flowers 2 TV series coming season two on Amazon Prime. Is that right? Yes. Boom. That's going to be incredible. And I cannot wait for the release of Dopamine. The trailer is absolutely hilarious. And you can see that on her website at GoldenSebaProductions.com. Zaire, I love this conversation. And I hope that we get to do a round two. And in the meantime, keep killing it out there and doing a great thing for everybody. Thank you. And thank you for all the work you did, did, all the research. And like, I'm impressed. And I really, really, really enjoyed this time. And thank you. And and I'm here, like, and I mean it. I mean, we should do things together and we should just, you know, uh, do more and more and connect more. Consider it done. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Be good. Hey, gang. One more thing before you go. I want to talk to you about Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So join today at www.bonsai.film. It just takes a few seconds, and once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter. It's that simple. Go to www.banzai.film to get Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails, just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, we hope not. But if you do, simply unsubscribe. 
No gimmicks, no games. So, one more time, go to www.banzai.film to get indie insights for free. And thank you for listening. <laughs>